Hi, everyone. Discord and Rhyme has been keeping a pretty steady schedule since we launched last June, and we love it, but we also need a break. So in lieu of our next regularly scheduled episode on September 4th, we're going to be doing our very first listener Q&A. So if you have a burning question about the show, the hosts, our music collections, or really anything on topic and in good taste, send it to discordpod at gmail.com, or you can also DM us at discordpod on Twitter. The deadline is Thursday, August 29th. On with the show! Happy National Radio Day, Discord and Rhyme listeners! It has been 100 years since the first radio transmission of music, a development that finally freed listeners to pick up good vibrations wherever they may be, whether at home or at work in a bustling metropolis. So today, Discord and Rhyme salutes the radio, which, for the first time, united the world in a drama of the mind, setting the scenes of many memories. You might even say it created a dream theater. This is Discord and Rhyme. Hey there, hello, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. We're at Discord Pod on Twitter and Instagram, so follow us and reach out to us because we love it. And show notes and older episodes are available on our website, discordpod.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast vendors of note that you've heard of. And you can also subscribe by email at discordpod.com slash contact. I'm Rich Bunnell, and I'm joined today by... Phil Maddox. John McFerrin. Dan Watkins. And Shivam Butt. Welcome back, Shivam. How's it going? Great. How are you guys doing? Thank you so much for having me. The last time I was here was a Mega Man episode, which was fantastic. Super fun to be on. We have something similarly nerdy for you this time. Mm. I'm excited. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, so Shivam last joined us on my episode about the Mega Man 2 original soundtrack for the Nintendo Entertainment System, which everybody should listen to, not that I'm biased or anything. Anyway, before we start, this is our 30th episode. That's wow. pretty awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks, Shivam. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, Phil is running the show this week, and he has somehow managed to out-nerd me with his choice of album. <laughs> so what you got for us, Phil? Ah, Dream Theater's classic 1999 concept album, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. <sighs> oh, no, it's prog metal, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that the longest album title we featured so far? It's either that or the Aretha Franklin one. It's going to be that until I take us through um, Astro Creep, 2000 Songs of Love, Destruction, and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head by White Zombie. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Or we can co- just cover one of those Fiona Apple ones to set a really high bar <laughs> that we can't possibly go past. <laughs> anyway, Phil, why did you choose this album besides to make the hairs on the back of John's neck stand up? Spoiler. <sighs> Because, like, I love Dream Theater, and I love this album in particular, and I'm very weirdly defensive of them. Dream Theater are one of those bands that I frequently see show up on lists of, like, the worst bands ever. I see them show up as, like, being, like, really soulless. 
And it's always just baffled me. So for a long time, I just heard one Dream Theater album, Images and Words, which I wasn't crazy about, though I thought it was okay. And then, like, I later just randomly started picking up their later albums, just thought, I love this band. But I kept on seeing them on, like, lists of, like, you know, worst bands ever and terrible bands and all this stuff. And it's, I feel a need to, like, you know, express my love for this band and this album in particular and, like, try to make the case for, like, why they shouldn't be the punching bag they are in certain circles. So tell us your history with Dream Theater, Phil. How did you get into them? So... I'd always heard of them just as a progressive rock band. Like, and I, I'm a big prog rock fan. I love, you know, Yes and King Crimson and Genesis and all the biggies. And I like metal. So I went to a local pawn shop in my hometown when I was in high school. And I found a copy of Images and Words, which I listened to a few times. I really liked the first song on there, Pull Me Under. Then I got to the second song, Another Day, which basically immediately made me turn the record off because <laughs> that song is not very good. So I listened to the album a couple times, but it just never really made much of an impression on me. Then cut to like, I don't know, like 10 years later, just out of random curiosity, I was at a local UCD shop and I found this album and I played it and basically just said, holy hell, this band is fantastic. So I started picking up every album by them I could find and I liked all of them. My opinion was like very kind of different from the average Dream Theater fan. Like many of them think that around Scenes from a Memory and the stuff after that, they got a little bit kind of quote unquote soulless. But like that's the era I actually liked the best. Like their songwriting got really sharp. Their playing got really sharp. The production got really good. They just started doing all kinds of stuff like that. And I just really like it. And I ended up picking up all their official releases. I bought like all the official bootlegs from their official website I got, like, fairly obsessed with this band. I saw them live. They were amazingly great. They've become, like, one of my favorite bands over the years, and it's just, it drives me crazy when I see how many people, like, you know, bag on them as, like, being terrible. And that still bugs me, like, because, like, I love this band, and I listen to them and think, why would people hate this band? Because I like Mm. them so much. Which I feel like other people on this podcast are going to give me plenty of information on why that would be. Well, so Shivam, you're our guest today. What's your history with Dream Theater? So here's the thing, right? Like, I've played Dungeons and Dragons for about 25 years. And you can't play Dungeons and Dragons without having run into Dream Theater at least 25 years of those 25 years of playing <laughs> D&D. Pretty reasonable. Because <laughs> one of the things about D&D is that when you're playing at your like friends' houses or whatever, it's different when you're playing in a university or a game store setting. But when you're playing at someone's house, you'll see that a lot of times they'll put on things like mood music that'll set the tone for the adventure that we're going on. Some fantasy-esque, some kind of proggy instrumental stuff. And a lot of the time, it ends up being like dream theater. For whatever reason, <laughs> in like the late 90s to mid-2000s, dream theater was like the generic D&D background music band of choice. And so <laughs> a lot of it is like we have spent a lot of time grinding through, you know, the desperate halls of Nezahul, fighting through <laughs> and listening to this guy just kind of caterwaul in the background. And <laughs> it's the thing is, instrumentally, they're phenomenal. They're a great band with a lot of real just virtuosity a lot of real talent but there's a very fine line between virtuosity and Yingwei Malmsteen and <laughs> sometimes Dream Theater goes a little bit onto the okay dude I get it you know how to play guitar thank you chill for a second or 30 or 500 but and like sometimes their ballads come in and their ballads really suck but yeah 
But that We're being said, hear, definitely going to hear one later. Yeah. That being said, Dream Theater is just like some of the best mood music you're going to find. Like it's one of the problems I had when we were setting up for this episode is I would be listening to the album and then I would just get distracted and I would start just like jamming and doing my work or whatever. And I would not be close listening anymore because I'm so used to just Dream Theater being the texture of my my sonic, you know, childhood. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm supposed to actually be listening to this and not just like, ah, yes, comfort zone. It's weird. I mean, Dream Theater is like, it's easy to hate on them for all of their being super cheeseball. But I mean, they're not worse than Guar. They're not worse than a lot of those like kind of fantasy metal bands that showed up in that era of time. They're just fine. And But the problem is their contemporaries were people like Tool or people like Metallica or other like real rock bands. And Dream Theater's a little bit um, frilly collars is all I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, Phil, I did. Li- I did like that you did that. You got to Dream Theater before you got to Metallica. That's amazing of you. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to Metallica eventually, but I honestly like Dream Theater like about as much. So, okay, Dan, how about you? What's your history with the DT? <laughs> I don't really have a history with this band. As far as history goes, when I was taking guitar lessons in like the fifth grade, my guitar teacher had a Dream Theater poster on the wall in between his <laughs> Great White and Zach Wild posters. That's about all I knew about them for, oh, what, 25 years or however long it's been until I heard <laughs> this album. And I guess I had a, an idea of a certain stigma that surrounded them without really knowing much about what they actually sounded like. I guess I won't spoil my take too much here, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I guess I'll say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I want to make sure that John goes last, but in the interest of time, I don't really have much of a history with this band. I got super, super cheap copies of Images and Words and Awake in college and quickly concluded that they were not my thing. (laughs) Uh, This album, many years later, was their second chance for me, but I'll save my more detailed thoughts for later. That having been said, uh, John, John McFerrin, what is your personal history with Dream Theater? This is one of those moments where you step back and the record scratches to a stop. And I ask myself, how did I end up at this moment in my life? So my introduction to Dream Theater came uh, about 20 years ago in my sophomore year of college. And by this point, I was uh, pretty firmly into the world of, of prog rock. And I also liked uh, a, a good deal of hard rock. And in particular, I was also a, a pretty big fan of Metallica at the, at the time. And to an extent, I still somewhat am. So I, ha- I had friends, uh, online acquaintances and, and otherwise, uh, who were aware of my burgeoning tastes. And they concluded, well, wait, you, you like uh, old-fashioned uh, art rock and prog rock, and you like uh, this type of metal. You might really dig Dream Theater. And I got this recommendation uh, from a few people. And so from their, from their specific recommendations, I gave my initial shot to uh, Images and Words. And I remember listening to it for the first time. And again, at this point, my, my music collection is much smaller than it is now. But my impression nonetheless was this is one of the biggest pieces of shit that I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> I thought maybe my copy was defective. <laughs> I thought maybe there was a mistake, but no, this was, this was the album. And I, by the end, I was fairly angry 
that I had spent the time that I had on it. Now, this wasn't the last time that I, I gave Dream Theater an opportunity. Uh, through the years, I people would post clips um, in various contexts, and I would listen to them, and I disliked all of them. Uh, and now, to be fair, it was one of these things where somewhat uh, my impression was snowballing on itself. I disliked it, and therefore I would hear something, and I would... I wouldn't wouldn't like it. It wouldn't shift it by itself, and it just kind of grew on itself. Now, uh, when Phil proposed uh, tackling this album, I decided that this was as good a chance as any to try and and do a hard reset, um, to try and and get better acquainted uh, with this band. And as an aside, I also did re-listen to Images and Words, and my opinion really did not budge. I like this one more. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I like it in the purest sense, uh, but I like it more. I, and there's actually, uh, as we go through the various tracks, there will be a number of places where I have uh, some nice things to say about uh, portions here and there, you know, couched in some general comments that I have along the way. So this is going to be an interesting experiment for all of us, I suppose. Haters. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> well, that, that that sounded cathartic, John. But let's go <sighs> on to the band history. So, all right, Phil, tell us all about dream theater all right so dream theater was formed in 1985 by bassist john myung guitarist john petrucci and drummer mike portnoy who met at the berkeley college of music in boston yeah shocking these guys met at a private music university they were joined shortly thereafter by keyboard player kevin moore and singer chris collins at the time they were known as majesty this lineup recorded a bunch of demos of highly varying quality They were never officially released at the time, but they're all available now as an official bootleg, quote unquote, sold by Dream Theater called The Majesty Demos. These aren't that great. The band is young and inexperienced, and it definitely shows. They're really recommended only for the hardest of hardcore fans. Still, even at that time, you could definitely hear the amount of musical talent the guys had, even if they hadn't, like, refined it into anything. So the band fired Chris Collins in 1986 because he really wasn't a very good singer. And if you listen to those demos, like, I know a lot of people don't like James Labrie's voice very much, but uh, listen to those demos and you'll uh, understand why uh, James Labrie's there. So they ended up looking for a new singer. Eventually, they settled on a guy by the name of Charlie Dominici. Uh, The band did a bunch of gigging around New York and kind of were building their profile. So they got sued by another band called Majesty. Because it turns out that name had been used. So um, the band... Should have become the New Majesties. (laughs) They could have, but instead they went with Dream Theater, which was named after a music venue. And for whatever reason, that one stuck. Eventually, the band attracted the attention of a subsidiary of MCA Records, uh, which signed the band and released their debut LP, When Dream and Day Unite, which has one of the absolute worst album covers of all time. Look it up. This album has some pretty decent material on it, but it's clear that the band has quite a ways to go to land on their classic sound. Also, the production is uh, not very good, which was a problem with a lot of early Dream Theater records. Also, at this point, the band was very heavily indebted to earlier prog bands, most notably Rush, as heard on the track Itse Jam, which is majesty spelled backwards. Oh, I was wondering what the hell that was. Yeah, that's what it is. we, We have a clip now. Listen to how much this band wants to be Rush.
more so than in all their other tracks. I see. <laughs> Definitely hear the mathematics in this track. The it's a jam. <laughs> yeah, I hear a lot of rush in that. You can definitely hear them trying to make their own YYZ, which uh, makes sense because if you go back to those Majesty demos, they used to cover YYZ because of course they did. After that album came out and completely flopped, nobody ever heard of it. It's still like kind of obscure. Uh, the band decided that Dominici was not working out and they fired him from the vocal spot right after the album was completed, right after he had gotten the band's logo tattooed on his arm. Oh, <laughs> ouch. I've never heard of that happening with a band before. That That's pretty cold. Although apparently uh, Dominici took it in stride uh, better than you'd think, saying that he had assumed that, you know, he was probably going to get sacked because he felt like the band was probably destined for bigger things. So did he just become their biggest fan going forward? Is that how he covered? Basically. He mm. did show up and do some guest appearances with the band later, uh, where it became clear that he definitely still could not sing very well. So the band got out of their record contract because they felt they weren't being promoted right, and they started searching for a new label. And at the same time, they started writing a bunch of new material, even though they didn't have a singer. Uh, many of these instrumental demos, along with the vocalist audition tapes, are available in another official bootleg release, Images and Words Demos, 1989 to 1991. The band eventually decided on a guy named Kevin James Labrie, known professionally as James Labrie, who has been their vocalist ever since, whether people like it or not. Hmm. <laughs> After this, the group got a record deal with Atco Records and released their second album, Images and Words, which had a minor hit on it, Pull Me Under. started the band on their road to cult superstardom. The album was very well received by fans, though critics were, as they are now, somewhat less kind. The album contained a track called Metropolis Part 1, The Miracle and the Sleeper. The Part 1 was intended as a joke since there were no plans to ever do a Part 2. Little did they know...
After this, the group released their third album, Awake, in 1994. This album was also well-received by fans, many of whom still cite it as a career highlight, but it failed to have a hit like Images and Words did. Keyboardist Kevin Moore quit the band at this point due to uh, frustration with the band's direction, wanting to do stuff on his own, and he was replaced by Derek Sherinian. The band followed this up with the EP A Change of Seasons in 1995, consisting of the 20-plus minute title track and a bunch of live covers. They had written this song, you know, many years before, but they couldn't get the record label to sign off on them putting a 20-minute song on one of their albums. (laughs) So right after this, the band recorded a bunch of demos for their next album, Falling Into Infinity. The record label wasn't happy with them and wanted them to write a bunch more commercial material, which the band was conflicted on. Some of them were fine with that because they wanted to have another hit. Some of them wanted to be more uncompromising, and you know, it led to the band fighting a bunch. The eventual album had a much more commercial sheen to it. Like, they brought in Desmond Child to co-write some of the songs. The guy who wrote, you know, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith, and, you know, a lot of stuff like that. So the album I think had, he wrote, like, uh, their comeback hits, like, uh, Dude Looks Like a Lady, actually. I think uh, Diane Warren That was wrote, Diane wrote, Warren. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Right. Yeah, but I mean, Desmond Child was like responsible for like the Aerosmith comeback and was just associated with that sound throughout the 80s. Right. And they brought him into like commercialized Dream Theater, which it didn't work because the album didn't sell any copies. (laughs) What a mistake. The most noteworthy thing to come out of those demos for the purposes of this podcast, at least, was that they wrote a 20 minute instrumental called Metropolis Part 2 that uh, they ended up abandoning before they you know recorded the final version of the album. But uh, they didn't forget about it. So in 1997... They formed an all-instrumental prog rock supergroup called Liquid Tension Experiment. It was uh, John Petrucci and Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, along with all-purpose session and prog rock bassist Tony Levin and uh, Dixie Dregs keyboard player Jordan Rudess on keyboards. Petrucci and Portnoy hit it off with Rudess and decided to replace Sherinian with him permanently. This solidified the band's lineup. They recorded six albums with this lineup before Portnoy quit and was replaced in 2010. So after uh, falling into infinity, uh, their attempts to commercialize the band's sound did not work. Uh, Portnoy apparently demanded and received complete creative control from the label after the debacle of you know, falling into infinity, and the group decided to revisit the Metropolis Part 2 suite that they had recorded during the falling into infinity sessions. They eventually decided to expand it into a full album, leading to the release of Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory, in 1999. The album was generally extremely well-regarded by their fan base and represented a change in sound that they would continue to follow for the rest of their career. They tightened up the production a lot. This album sounds a lot better than their previous albums in terms of, you know, just how it's produced. It's a lot heavier. There's one thing I need to point out, a coincidence that was too strange for me not to note it here. On the uh, following tour for Scenes for a Memory, they performed the whole album front to back. They eventually decided to release a live album from this tour, which they titled Live Scenes from New York. The album's front cover depicted the New York City skyline centered on the Twin Towers in flames. And the album Oops. was released on September 11th, 2001. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was such a big deal because it was like, oh, no. That is yeah. the most poorly timed launch you could possibly imagine. I mean, not to get too far into like 9-11 stuff, but there was also that Coup album, that album by the Coup Party Music that originally had like, the, the cover was literally going to be them blowing up the Twin Towers with dynamite. Yeah, that's yeah. what I remember. Uh, they changed that cover. <laughs> it was a popular thing to yeah. do in the 2000s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it was an anti-globalization thing, but yeah. they had to rethink their symbolism. Uh, anyway. But yeah, <laughs> the band pulled that pretty quick. 
cowards. There are a few copies out there, and if you have a copy of that, congratulate yourself. You have a collector's item, and they reissued it with a different cover. Okay, so by the way, uh, if any of your listeners have any thoughts on Dream Theater, this episode, or just the show in general, uh, email us at discordpod at gmail.com. But before we sit in a comfy chair and regress back to 1999 for this album, it's time for some plugs. Do you want more from Discord and Rhyme? Of course you do. And you are in luck because we've made our blog available to everyone. Find it on our website at discordpod.com slash blog. There are about a dozen posts there right now, and new ones will be added every other Friday. We also want to tell you about the changes we've made to our Patreon reward tiers now that the blog isn't there anymore. We have some great stuff for you, including early access to bonus episodes and the chance to talk about albums with us on our Discord chat. There's even an option to have us plug your project in this very segment on two episodes. Also, while I was making these new reward tiers, I screwed up and accidentally removed many of you from the tiers you were on before. So now a lot of our patrons are not attached to any rewards. I'm really sorry about that, you guys. So if you're already a Patreon donor, please double check your account and make sure you're signed up for the reward level you want. And if you're not on Patreon, check it out and see what we have for you. If you're interested in supporting us in other ways, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and the other podcast platforms are a huge help for other people to find the show and to make us feel good about ourselves. Also, tell your friends about this awesome podcast you've heard and invite them to the Discord and Rhyme Party. Thanks for listening. Now back to Dream Theater. Welcome back, and enough delay tactics. Sorry, John, it's time for the album. <sighs> I'm ready. In keeping with this being the nerdiest album we've ever covered, Scenes from Memories tracklist is divided into acts and scenes. So it starts with <laughs> Act 1, Scene 1, Regression. This is why D&D players love this. <laughs> Y'all know there's such a thing as opera, right? <laughs> why would you listen to that when you can listen to Dream Theater? It's a fair point, I suppose. Safe in the light that surrounds me. Ah, uh, hello, James Labrie. Free of the fear and the pain. My subconscious mind starts spinning through time to rejoin the past once again. Nothing seems real. I'm starting to feel lost in the haze of a dream. And as I draw near, the scene becomes clear, like watching my life on a screen. Hello, Victoria, so glad to see you. So that was the entirety of track one, essentially, minus like some spoken stuff at the beginning that sets up the plot. Such garbage. <laughs> so this album's very plot heavy, and uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of little short songs on here that are. This album basically has two types of songs: the songs that are a minute long and the songs that are twelve minutes long. This is one of the one minute songs, and it's basically just setting up things as an overture to the rest of the album. It's the same melody to a song that you're going to hear much later in the album. The spirit carries on. But basically, this just sets up the scene of uh, the main character of the story, Nicholas, who is a neurotic man going through hypnotherapy. 
The story of this album is basically Nicholas regressing to a past life through hypnotherapy, where he realizes he was a young woman named Victoria who was involved in a love triangle and murdered at a young age in 1928. Not a whole lot to say here. This was just setting the scene and basically serving as a basic overture to everything before like the real nitty gritty of the album starts. I'll say one other thing about the lyrics of this album. It's kind of hard to tell what the plot is sometimes because this album is structured in such a way that all the lyrics are supposed to be sung by various characters from the from the plot. But they don't have various singers. They're all James Labrie. <laughs> so uh, the liner notes like that came with the CD. Remember those? It actually contains a libretto that has like annotations that say like what lyrics are being sung in the present, what lyrics are being sung in the past, what character is singing them, etc., etc. So you're really kind of expected to follow along with the liner notes, which is not something anybody's going to be doing now because it's 2019 and people don't know what liner notes are. So I'll be explaining the plot as we go because it's not always clear what's happening and you know we're only playing clips. But I think it's pretty easy to lose track on of what's happening. So I will be, you know, spelling out from track to track what's happening. That's the thing. So I was listening to this and I didn't realize that it was a concept album with a story. So when I'm listening and I'm just like, what in the these like random songs have like they're just so <laughs> it feels disconnected and surreal in a weird way like i don't understand the lyrics of what's going on because again like i told you in the beginning dream theater is more like texture that's audio in the background than actual song to me because to me their strength has always been their instrumentation and listening to these lyrics i'm just like who is victoria and what is this person who's killed themselves later on and i'm i'm just so lost why what go back to the music part i don't want to hear you <laughs> Well, this uh, this track amuses me because it has like the spoken word intro with the ticking clock, and you you probably would have gotten the point just with that. But then James Labrie comes in and just spells it all out explicitly to you through song, like he's giving you the information that you've already received. Just he's just singing it. But anyway, I want to as as far as the plot is concerned, I want to talk about its similarity to the 1991 movie Dead Again, um, directed by Kenneth Branagh, which I actually watched for the purposes of this episode let nobody accuse me of not doing my research um or this album shares some broad similarities like it's the same broad concept of scenes from a memory but the past life regression goes back to 1949 instead of 1928 and the plot it just goes absolutely like bonkers in a way that the album just doesn't really attempt like i don't know i, I love that you would expect a metal band to be expected by say like the shining or rosemary's baby or something but for Dream Theater, it was an Emma Thompson movie that got the creative career's turn. I feel like that's actually exactly fitting what you would expect Dream Theater to be all about. Oh, yeah. The main impact this song has on me is going, oh, that's what he sounds like. Hmm. <laughs> I, I was not expecting those vocals, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, listening to it just now... Uh, it's brevity and this kind of acoustic simple song makes it kind of seem like a less good pigs in the wing. I was thinking exactly <laughs> those words. Oh yeah. It's, it's fine. Uh, By Pink Floyd, we should know. Yes. Um, but there's no reprise of this really. So I guess it's not quite the direct parallel, but, uh, well, th the theme shows up multiple times throughout the album. Like there's a whole like seven minute song with the same melody later. Yeah. Hmm. Does the 8-track version of this album have a hidden guitar solo? <laughs> <laughs> Good pull. But it's okay. Uh, there are better songs on the way, I'll say that. 
yeah, it's like, well, nobody nobody loves this song. It's it's just there to get things kicked off. So just what I would say really quick is um, right from the start, I do not like Labrie's voice here. I like it more than I liked it on Images and Words. Um, here is just bland. He's a little bit rougher and, sounding here than he was on Images and Words. Which is which is good and bad. Um, I actually really like the way that they do the countdown, though. Um, with, with the back and forth and then the way that like it's slow, like the, the way that they do the crossfade uh, as it as it quiets down and then the music emerges. It's, that's actually a really neat little production effect that I enjoy quite a bit. It's a, this is a very, very well produced album. I agree. I'm not going to put that. I would never put the production um, against this album one bit. And just there's a lot of interesting little details um, that I enjoy, even if I don't necessarily enjoy what they're in the service of. Anyway, the tracks, it is what it is. It's it's just a, it's a it's not even an overture because the next one's the overture. This is a prelude. It's a prelude to the overture, which yes. is a very dream theater thing to do. Every yes. concept album starts with some nonsense in the beginning to just say, That's right. you are in space time. It's like, OK, That's yeah, right. okay, skip. Let's get to the actual song part. <laughs> well, let's move forward in space time with. Uh, so remember how these songs are titled? This is scene two, Roman numeral one, overture 1928. Like the next three or four songs are all kind of like one mega song to me, and they're all really good. <laughs> like, I enjoyed this chunk quite a bit. Yeah, me too. Okay, the console is powered up. <laughs> I expect like the PlayStation logo there. <laughs> the chamber there is a door to your north you see two goblins sitting in the corner <laughs> do you see why this is like like perennial D&D adventure music it's like it feels like late era Sega CD music for like you know shining forth lunar type of games but also just has that like my adventuring party is gonna go out and thrash things Did you find that you would win more at RPGs when this was playing? Yes, definitely. The music influenced the roll of the dice and forced them to land on those 20s. So not a whole lot of plot stuff here because it's it's an overture to the album. It's a bunch of themes that show up later, presented you know instrumentally, along with a few themes that don't show up later, um, many of which were actually originally written as part of the Metropolis Part 2 demo that was recorded during the Falling Into Infinity sessions. I think this is really solid. I mean, it's an overture, so they're playing, you know, all the themes from the album. And you would assume if they're going to be having an overture, they're going to play the best ones, which they do. This all flows really well. It's a really nice introduction to the album. And it's hard to talk too much about it because, like, most of these themes get developed more in later songs. But it's just a really cool instrumental that I like a lot. I want to say something nice about this album for once. Um I love this track. I legit love it. The, the opening 30 seconds to me is by far the best part of this album. Um, just this feel like, holy crap, the album's starting. Like, this might be great. Like, my initial reaction initially when I first listened was like, oh, 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 okay. This this might turn out really well. Now, I, I shifted from that a bit. But, like, this provides uh, a very, very positive sense to it um, 
from the start. Now, I would say that I find some of Petrucci's soloing a little tedious and winky, which I guess is just par for the course. It's John Petrucci. Yes. But I do really like his slower lines uh, that he plays here and the textures where he he emulates uh, Alex Lifeson's uh, more atmospheric approaches uh, to play him. I don't really like the keyboard parts, the keyboard solos that much. And even in a length of just three minutes, 30 something, I, I start to feel like the, the, the thought that comes to mind uh, here is just because you can doesn't mean you should. But with all that said, this track serves a clear function. And it, as a survey of the most iconic bits, it's very effective, and I think it's it's quite interesting, and I I legit enjoy it. I love this track. This track and the following few tracks are just the exact kind of just driving instrumental metal that I'm totally into. And I mean, yeah, and noodles it wiggles, but it's got this real strong theming to it. It's got a real story it tells just instrumentally, even without knowing this weird plot of this album. This album, uh, this track set itself just really, it wakens you. It, it says, all right, we're going somewhere and this is going to be cool. So I think as both as an intro track into the album leading into it, it's a great way to start. It's got definitely got that overture feel like the naming itself implies. And I don't know, I just dig it. I really, really just enjoyed this. It was like, I like uh, listened to this a few times actually because it was just jamming. I mean, this this is the kind of this is the part of Dream Theater that I'm totally into. Yeah, I love overtures. They really make you feel like you're setting out on a quest. Like I love when a movie yep. starts with an overture. Exactly. Even like even it's a mad 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 world has an overture and it makes it feel like it's just this huge undertaking. Um, but anyway, I played this album for my wife in the car earlier and her reaction was this overture doesn't really scream out 1928 to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not too much. Yeah. That, I wonder what their like take on like Cole Porter or something would be. Um, I probably, I don't think I want to hear it though. There's exactly one part of this album that has like a 1928 vibe and we'll get to it later. Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll go ahead and make my disclaimer that this is not my general genre of choice um so i'm approaching this album by kind of leaving my usual sense of good taste uh on the coat rack but i actually really like this this is you know it's it is noodly but once i'm kind of ready to deal with this sort of thing i can enjoy it and it's just there's a lot of good melodies and a lot of really good guitar riffs on it um i kind of agree some of the keyboards are a bit uh, that much for me but uh but I, I like this yeah i like just a big i don't want to say pretentious because that's maybe obvious but <laughs> a big grandiose opening like this so yeah i, I like this well let's move on uh, in this bach opera with uh, with scene two roman numeral two strange deja vu these titles man strange deja vu here's what's inside of you <laughs> Uh, welcome back, James. Familiar settings, nothing new. And there's a pathway leading there. With a haunt and chill in the air. There's a room at the top of the stairs. Every night I'm drawn up there. And there's a girl in the mirror. Her face is gay. 
time signature just grabbing you and then pulling you back and grabbing you and pulling you back. And it's got such a... The lyrically, this song is like every generic metal song of that mid-90s era. Like, hey, I read a Dead Can Dance lyric book once and then I tried to rewrite like that. But it's just... Lyrically, it could be singing about, you know, making bread or something. It doesn't even matter because the song itself is just so pleasantly prog metal that you're just like, ah, I know where I am. I understand this genre and this disc. It feels like in in lieu of understanding the story, it almost feels like just this is a good filler transition track to lead you into farther into the album. That's a good way to put it. Like this is, you know, it's pretty short by the standards of this album which means it's a normal length song. (laughs) The only plot thing here happening is, this is again, like the third straight track that's kind of setting the scene. Nicholas, through his hypnotherapy, finds out that he was a young woman named Victoria in a past life and becomes kind of obsessed with it. That's basically all that's happening here. But this is like a pretty normal sounding song. Like, you know, I mean, by Dream Theater standards, it has a bunch of different riffs in it that are all like really interesting. I love the way it transitions to all the different riffs. There's a lot of cool stuff going on here. And it really does serve well to bridge into like the longer and more complicated instrumental stuff that's coming into the album, as well as having a theme that's, you know, very entertaining and like, you know, is reprised frequently throughout the album. I feel like this might be a good time to talk a little bit about like James Labrie's vocals, which Hmm, a, a lot of people do not like him. Like, a lot of people on this podcast do not like him. He sounds just mm. generically high-pitched metal voice guy. Like, there's nothing identifiable about him that stands out. Like, the thing with James Labrie is, like, I've seen a lot of people complain about him, but the thought I've always had is, like, and if anybody has any suggestions here, come in. Like, this, like, very over-the-top, like, you know, complicated, ridiculous music that Dream Theater are playing, what kind of vocalist would work? Like, who would be a better singer here? I feel like anybody who didn't have like his like kind of like high pitched metal like yelling style would get like devoured by this. I've never I've thought about that a bunch. Like he's not my favorite vocalist in the world, but I honestly like, you know, it's like you want to put like James Hetfield here. That would sound dumb. (laughs) Like you can't put like, you know, a Peter Gabriel type progressive like rock vocalist here. That would sound ridiculous. You can't put like a John Anderson on this. Black Francis. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Black Francis. I'd, I'd like to hear that. Go get Trevor Horn. That's always been my take on Labrie. Like, he's not my favorite vocalist in the world, but, like, he's musically appropriate is the way I would describe his vocals. I, like, I think he works with the material that he's given. Sometimes when he's singing other material, like, it doesn't work so well. Like, on their website, you can buy, like, an official bootleg of them performing the entirety of Master of Puppets. And the band is great, but Labrie trying to sing the songs from Master of Puppets just does not work. You know who could do this, though? Axl Rose. Axl Rose could sing Dream Theater. He would do okay. It would be weirdly different, but awesome, and I would totally be here for that. James Labrie is good at singing Dream Theater music. He doesn't translate to a lot of other styles perfectly well, but I think he's good given the material he's with. I think he's a good fit. Yes. Well, this is the song where it first dawned on me, like listening to it last night, finally, like focusing on the lyrics that this album is more or less a musical. And I asked Phil about it earlier, like whether or not they'd actually staged a musical version of it. And you said that they wanted to, but it actually hasn't happened yet. It has not happened. They did tour it and they played the whole thing. 
Yeah, and it had like video clips and stuff, is my understanding, that included extra information that wasn't in the actual um, text of the yeah um, of the album. But yeah, it's it just it really like dawned on me here just how musical like it is with just little to no metaphor and Labrie just straight up spelling out what's going on in the plot like it's like Bell or something like there <laughs> goes the baker with his bubble. Like, but like, but if you want like you know lyrical subtlety and like you know metaphors or whatever, you know you don't go to Dream Theater. No kidding. No, I don't. I don't mind it. I actually. I mean, I've recently realized that I really like musicals. So like, if I approach it that way, it actually helped me digest the album more. So. I recommend that lens if you're having trouble with it and like musicals. Whereas I hate musicals, so that explains a lot of why I can't deal with the lyrics of Dream Theater. It's just pointless telling stories. I'm like, stop, just stop. Yeah, I am not a fan of musicals, and uh, that may be part of my problem <laughs> with some of the tracks like this. Because, <laughs> and I feel bad now after Phil's comments. Uh, the, the vocals here really kind of grate on me. Uh, with the, the higher register stuff. It, it, it's a bit much. Uh, I, I do like the more of the chunkier guitar riffs on this album in general, though. This is a lot of that in here. And there's a really cool little boogie section about halfway through that I like. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, again, it's, it's another kind of transition track because having listened to this on the on my phone at work, this whole like first, I don't know what, four or five tracks, I did not know where they began and ended. So I think it really, I, it all flows. It's all part of one thing before you get into like, you know, the second half where things stretch out way more. Yeah. It wasn't until I had the lyrics from you. I was like, oh, okay, this is track three. Okay. But uh, yeah, this is, it's, it's fine. It, it keeps it moving, but uh, yeah, the vocals. Hmm. I like musicals um, and I like opera and I actually like these uh, first few tracks. Um, generally speaking, um, I like the, I, I like the fact that this, that the in the initial stretch the track lengths are shorter and they're more varied you don't quite get into the slog of ersatz epics it makes me think of how like when you're when you're speaking you want to vary the length of your sentences in order to be able to um most effectively capture uh your audience you don't want to just say you know very long sentences or very short sentences. you want to vary the back and forth and i feel like that worked with track listings and, and with track lengths as well and and I feel like that's part of why this 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 part of the album grabs me more, and maybe also because it's it's earlier. Um, I also like some individual details uh, in this track itself. Um, I really like the transition out of the overture. Um, I really love uh, the bass riff that pops up around uh, two forty, and a riff that varies out of it around three twenty. Anyway, yeah, John Myung, their bass player, is kind of the unsung hero of this band because I never hear people talk about him that much, but he's amazing. I think he's my favorite part of this album instrumentally. But like if you listen to like some of their other albums, like if you listen to like the Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence album, like his bass playing on The Glass Prison, like he's amazing. And nobody ever really talks about him, which is a shame because he's fantastic. Well, I've said something nice about him, so... That's my good deed for the day. Uh, Labrie is really starting to irritate me uh, by this point, which is a problem with how much is left. Um, and just generally, I, I find some of the more dramatic parts of the, the song silly, even by the standards of this album. But in this case, I don't necessarily find it silly in a bad way. Um, I Again, like, I, I can enjoy this, um, and and my cynicism isn't quite built up to the levels it will be later. Okay, so let's move into scene three. Uh, this is a short one. Uh, Roman numeral one, through my words. All your eyes have ever seen All you've ever heard Is that 
So this is basically like a little one-minute snippet that uh, serves as a preview of a later song, uh, Through Her Eyes. That's a nice way of saying, this is a warning telling you to run. <laughs> yeah, I see it as like kind of a terrifying vision of a, of a horrifying experience you're going to have later on in the album. <laughs> and then it just kind of slides into the next track, Fatal Tragedy. Lyrically, it's also just kind of there. Like, it's just <laughs> Nicholas is thinking about how Victoria's memories and life experiences are a part of him. Which, yeah, that's been established. Um, so this is just a little one-minute snippet. And uh, as for the melody and everything, I'll talk about it more when we get to Through Her Eyes, but I don't have a lot to say here. It's a pretty little bit of nothing. I like it may- way more in this context than, than what comes later. Um, and the piano's really nice, and it floats by and doesn't leave uh, much of a mark. But the mark that, that it leaves, I think, with, again, absent of the knowledge of what comes later, I think is more on the positive side than not. Yeah, I agree with John. Like actually this, this type of thing isn't too bad in this little bite sized, uh, serving, uh, what comes later, not so much, but, uh, this is, this is okay. It's, it's a, it's a decent enough transition. And, and this is another one where I thought this is just beginning of a song. So it's like how I'll never eat a full three musketeers bar cause they're gross, but I'll have the fun size ones just cause they're there. <laughs> okay so uh, that's that's a pretty short one so let's just let's move on to the second part of scene three roman numeral two i'll just say one and two from now on not no roman numerals fatal tragedy i kind of like three musketeers and i really shouldn't you shouldn't they're not very good that's probably true getting into the meat of the album here we've gotten past like kind of the little snippety things at the beginning and we're really starting to get into like you know your longer more interesting intricate tracks here so plot wise here um nicholas feels compelled to go looking for information about this woman victoria who he realizes he was in a past life and finds out that she was murdered in a nearby home and that's basically what's going all that's going on here The song is basically divided into two parts. The first part is the normal song part, which is just, I think is really cool. It has like a nice little piano riff, like, you know, building and building, like it kind of builds into like the guitars come in. You have like kind of a slow headbanging part that I think is great. I think Labrie sounds very good on this. I think his vocals like really work here. 
And it really conveys the like, you know, kind of sinister atmosphere of the information that Nicholas is learning. But this is dream theater. So really, the song part of it is only about the first half of it. And the second half of it is just dream theater go insane on their instruments for four straight minutes. I do like this part. It's like Cowboys from Hell. Hell yeah. <laughs> also on Atco Records. So. I only know that song from Guitar Hero. Same here. is like at the end of the day this is why i come to dream theater like stuff like that like the song parts are you know they're good they can write good songs i think like one of the common like you know things that are levied at dream theater they're not good songwriters or they're soulless sounding which i don't agree with i think they're good at that but like these kinds of like crazy instrumental sections are a lot of the appeal of dream theater to most people and to me as well like I really like a lot of prog rock. I like a lot of heavy metal and I love this. Like, I just love this just like pounding crazy guitar riff. All the time signatures like swirling around, like all the cool like keyboard parts, the keyboard part that absolutely sounds like it came out of a Castlevania game or something in there. Oh, that is very, that's very serendipitous that you said that because yeah, that video gaming part that you clipped specifically reminds me of clockwork, the clock tower theme from Castlevania three. Very much. I have a clip right here, and since I have a couple other certified gaming nerds here, this is a superior Famicom version of the song. Fantastic. Nothing but the best for you. That level is so hard. I mean, I guess it's a level in a Castlevania game. But, like, this is the stuff, like... I guess like this is where like a lot of people's opinions on dream theater kind of split because like everybody kind of agrees about James Labrie to a varying degree, even their hardest of hardcore fans. Like, but like if you're not into like this kind of like crazy wanky heavy metal stuff like that, like you're just not going to like dream theater very much. But like I'm fine with like endlessly long convoluted instrumental sections because like I'm a fish fan and like an Umphreys McGee fan and all these like crazy jam bands. So stuff like this, I could just listen to like, you know, stuff like the last half of Fatal Tragedy all day. It's exactly what I'm here for. Yes, 100%. It, this just reminds me of, uh, I got to see Tool and King Crimson. King, King Crimson opened for Tool. And oh, fantastic. So at the end of the King Crimson set, Maynard from Tool comes out and they spend like 45 minutes just like noodling and like wordlessly singing over this like just prog rock i don't even know what it was symphony and it was mind shattering so like when dream theater starts getting all crazy town i love it that's like that's why i'm here that's like the best part of it 
the only good part of Dream Theater. But it's real good, though. Yeah, you said the magic words, King Crimson, for this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this, this song's about the same length as I've seen All Good People, and unfortunately to me it feels about three times as long. And yet, even for that, I still don't dislike it. Because here's the thing. Um, I really like a bunch of the individual pieces. I like the way that the guitar keyboards thing uh, that makes up the initial theme, you know, it's it's a noble attempt at creating a prog metal and music hall hybrid. I really like the the guitar and drums jam that starts uh, around 350 that morphs into the video game boss music. I like the 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 stutter riffage that emerges around 220. But the thing for me, and this is where I differ from a lot of people who like uh, prog rock and music in this area of things, I have no feel for how these different parts fit together in any way that makes the least bit of sense. And if how things fit together is not something that matters to you, then that will sound like nonsense. You'll say, like, what? The individual pieces are great. Therefore, the, the song is great. And I've been told that argument with a lot of types of music over the years and i get it but it's not something i agree with um i when i feel like i'm listening to a, a very a bunch of jam ideas super glued onto each other my mind starts to wander i get bored even if the individual pieces are super interesting in and of themselves i get bored and yet with all that the pieces here are interesting enough and at least the track isn't too long that if I was forced to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to it, I would, I would give a thumbs up. It's just a bunch of pieces glued together, and they're good enough pieces. But I look for more than that. I agree that it's just a bunch of pieces. I think they flow together really like colorfully to me. Like, well, so what, during the Stevie Wonder episode, Mike he described the song "Contusion" as quote a fun ride, and that's kind of what the song feels like to me. Like they, I don't know, they it's not very cohesive as a whole, but I enjoy going on the ride. I mean, I don't want to belabor, like, on Contusion too much, but, like, the pieces in Contusion are all much shorter. And and the ride, the, like, I like that the ride is still based on, on a funk groove, even on, on underneath the jazz fusion. I want, well, I want to make it clear that I think Stevie Wonder is a superior composer to the members of Dream Theater. What? What? <laughs> what a brave stand you have taken. Yes. Yeah, I'm just going to say it. Official stand of Discord and Rhyme. I guess, like, I think this all flows together great. I think it works really well. Same. Um, but I think it might be because, like, I think of the people on this podcast, I'm probably the biggest metalhead. Yeah. Like, I have, like, a crazy amount of, like, metal stuff in my catalog. And, like, it's a bunch of really cool riffs with a bunch of really cool solos. And I think it all flows together and, like, you know, yes, adds up to much. a cohesive whole. I think, like... This flies by for me. This does not feel half as long as it does, as it actually is to me. That I could listen to that last instrumental section forever. It never drags for a second, like for me. I just really love how all of it flows. Yeah, as, also as a fellow metalhead, this is like exactly the kind of thing that I'm just like, this is why I listen to metal. I want to hear the yep. long, crazy solos that are just like, I mean, I couldn't, like when you were saying that, oh, it, it doesn't feel cohesive or, or like stitched together properly. I'm like, I don't understand that at all. This feels exactly like what I would expect a long metal instrumental piece to feel like. You can chalk that up to maybe differences in just like how music feels to different people, because to me, this mm -hmm. is extremely coherent. Yeah. Like, so I come from a background of listening to a lot of Indian classical music and in Indian classical music, we have very 
very, I mean, it's all instrumentals, right? Like 45 minute long jams. You play a scale and then you go within that framework that you built in your first uh, first part of your song. So when I'm coming to metal instrumentals and stuff, that's kind of the framework that I'm coming from. I'm like, okay, they've established this is the kind of range that we're going to be playing in. We're going to work within this square and mess around and go around the bounce. It felt entirely like this is all, like I've heard really bad metal solos where they're just like instrumental, where it feels like Chinese opera almost, where, you know, the, the drummer is <laughs> going this way and the guitarist is going that way. And you have no idea, but this felt like a driving rhythmic metal piece that was just totally like reasonable, right? It's like I'm not saying that this is like high art. It's not like Joe Satriani or something, but it's it's good. It's it's does the job fine for what I want, which is like you know an actiony textured attack piece, and it's great. And that's fair. I mean, the thing is, there is a lot of of types of music that where I'm very happy. To, to go on a long journey and um, a, a, and listen to things that don't have have a tight structure. I listen to a lot of of uh, of Ornick Coleman or uh, Ascension Era John Coltrane, um, and maybe my brain is just wired in such a way where if instruments are older and jazzy, <laughs> I am more accepted. But then when you bring uh, an electric guitar in, I want things to be tamped down. And again. Part of the reason that I wanted to go through this again, this exercise of, of doing this particular episode and having these discussions is to try to get the better sense of where is that disconnect. Because again, in theory, based on other things that I enjoy, I should be enjoying this more and yet. And so it's just going to be probably little uh, turning points here and there around the edges. Dan, how about you? I, I am team fun ride on this. I, I, I really enjoy this. Uh, yeah, I'm not a connoisseur of this type of thing at all. So maybe I don't have expectations of uh, coherence <laughs> or cohesion, rather. But um, there is a moment on this song that makes me laugh out loud every time I hear this album. And it's like around 205 or so, there's this call and response with the guitar riff and yes! this ridiculous Phantom of the Opera organ <laughs> and a Bill and Ted guitar oh, trill. Oh, so ridiculous. Like it was 100% intended to be funny. Yes, I, so. I agree. That part, I agree with that. I don't hold it against them. But it at cracks all. every time I hear it. <laughs> that part sounds like Queen to me. And you know how I feel about Queen. Yeah. No, I don't actually hate Queen. There's just a certain cluster of Queen songs <laughs> that I just never, ever need to hear again. All of them? Because that's where I'm at. <laughs> they have like a few like scattered album tracks here and there that I'm not completely sick of. But I don't know. There aren't really a lot of Queen deep cuts, honestly. <laughs> Okay, that's a lot about Fatal Tragedy, though. Let's go on to... It's time for scene four, Beyond This Life. The first of the epics. Yes, the first. <laughs> there are more.
This kind of has those new metal dynamics to the to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah, just without the shouting and rapping. Mm-hmm. Like this is the most 1999 part of the album. Oh yes. Yeah, that's that's honestly. I mean, even without all of that, it's still not a terribly appealing aesthetic to me. It's an entirely fine song. It's. Yeah. <laughs> So here in Plot Town, Nicholas uh, starts doing research via old newspapers, and he finds out that Victoria was involved in a love affair with a man who was involved in various sketchy dealings and was possibly cheating on her. She confronts him and told him she was leaving, at which point the man murdered her, then killed himself when a witness heard gunshots and confronted them. Then there's like eight minutes of solos. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, I like this album a lot more before I knew there was a plot. (laughs) It's like, that's the thing when you think about like rock operas, it's like dream theaters are kind of, they're kind of half foot in and half foot out because they do a lot of plot stuff. But I failed to see what the last like eight minutes of this song have to do with anything with the plot because it's just a bunch of solos and jamming. It almost feels like they, the singer is allowed to get like 20% of the song. So they're like, fine, say whatever you want. Here's your chunk. Now shut up and let us do the fun part. (laughs) Yeah. But I, again, I love this. Like. This is just like a pounding the way like the guitar riff like pounds ahead and the drums like pound along with it. Again, I'm a a metalhead. I love this kind of like hardcore, like driving metal. This is about as heavy as Dream Theater ever get, Um, at least on this album. And I think it really works. And then later on, like they take that same like kind of pounding riff but like you mentioned, has kind of a new metal-y sound to it and combine it with, you know, dream theater style, like hyper shredding. And I think they end up with something insanely entertaining. And we have a clip there. I actually like this song quite a bit. Like... It's, it's not really that kind of metal. This is not like screaming metal. This is like, it feels almost like a little bit more intellectual, right? Like, like mm-hmm. you're sitting in an armchair with a snifter of brandy metal. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but this is like, this is like one of the few parts of this album like that's like mosh pit worthy. Like I could imagine like people in a mosh pit, like knocking each other around. Yeah, to, like, but you've this. been to a dream theater show, man. None of those guys have ever been to a mosh pit in their life. No, I've been to Dream Theater shows, and uh, or one singular, and yeah, it was a very, very quiet and polite crowd, no matter what the yeah, band was like, playing. Like, this is definitely, like, people who LARP on the weekends, the concert, right? Like, this is, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate the group or anything, I just think that Dream Theater knows exactly who their fan base is, and makes music for them, and <laughs> it works. It works. It works for the people who are, like, hardcore fantasy heads, hardcore, kind of, like, into this weird prog epic like just surrealism i love it i think it's great i think this track is solid now this song doesn't bore me for a second no i i I dug it i dug it quite a bit there's one more clip i have in this one which is that i've seen many people cite like you know dream theater cited like frank zappa as an influence and a lot of people will say like i don't really hear frank zappa in their sound or whatever there's about a minute clip of this song that i think is the clearest example of their frank zappa influence What does that mean to sound like Frank Zappa? Let's find out. (laughs) 
Yeah, I could do without the jazz using the Nintendo sound chip. <laughs> well, I've heard like Super Nintendo soundtracks that sound like this part. Yes. That is super zappy. Yeah, this is the part where I'm like, okay, chill. <laughs> but in particular there, like, the um, interplay at the end there reminds me a lot of, like, the interplay Frank Zappa would have with Ruth Underwood, like, in the, um, mm-hmm. what they would call the Roxy Band. The Roxy and um, elsewhere. So, like, this is yeah. just clearly, mm-hmm. like very influenced by like the early 70s like roxy frank zappa band which i have no problem with because i love that stuff and i love this too except you know this is obviously way heavier than anything frank zappa did but i just think like you know everything in this works just cool riff like very pounding there's a lot of cool instrumental sections it all works for me i don't get bored over the 13 minutes of this yeah, I think I think this is my favorite on the album. And again, if you throw in some zappisms, it'll make my dumb ears prick up. <laughs> this totally works for me. And even like uh, one of the guitar solos on here of the 50, um, like even the guitar tone sounds like it's straight off of Overnight Sensation, particularly uh, 50-50. Yes. It sounds just yeah. like it's from there. But I, yeah, I really like this. Again, like I think when when the song part ends and they just play i like that <laughs> that's almost always the best part of a dream theater song yep so, so maybe i maybe i am a dream theater fan in the making who knows i really like the zappa part um shock because i love the the roxy and elsewhere uh, era of of zappa but the thing is beyond that it, it, this is a track another one of those tracks where if you grab any random 30 second excerpt I'd be like, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty great. And, and yet, you know, so, so I, I was, I was thinking about this. I, I was talking with Phil about this a few days ago in the lead up uh, to this album. I was also uh, spending some time listening to the latest uh, album from Steve Hackett, uh, one time uh, guitarist for Genesis. And he's someone whose solo career I've, I've followed closely and the thing is, like, I really liked the, the way that he approached things uh, throughout the first decade of the 2000s. And the last few have, have largely disappointed me because he, he's largely shifted into a route of doing essentially his interpretation of this kind of approach to writing instrumental passages, which is basically uh, take all the cool ideas you can, you can come up with and just uh, smash them down, you know, loosely edit it for time to, to, to fit the space. And you know, Phil, you indicated that you really like, in particular, the the most recent one he did, where I was just like, eh, uh, with some of those passages, and that's kind of how I feel uh, in listening to this one. I'm also not going to let them off scot free for the Labrie stuff at the beginning. I know you guys have been very, super eager to move past that, but what I hear from him is a really bad and really um, inferior attempt to sound like Dio. Mm. <laughs> and it really irritates me and when i'm listening to that i just my main thought is i really wish i was listening to neon nights right now 
and then it kind of just sours me a little bit. And then again, I, 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 and then I get a little bit bored and then the Zappa part comes in. It's like, okay, fine, fine. I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy again. Um, so yeah, this is one that's up and down for me. Um, and I get why people would love it. I really do. And every time I listen to it, there, there comes a point where it just starts to turn into prog metal white noise. So I think you just answered the question definitively when I was asked earlier, like what singer would be perfect for Dream Theater that would be better than James? Yeah. The answer is Ronnie James Dio. Hmm. That's there you go. Yes, 100 percent. Like now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, damn, that would be real, real good. <laughs> Okay, guys, it's time to rip off that Band-Aid. We finish Act 1 with Scene 5, Through Her Eyes. And, yeah, it's, it's fun that we go right out of this great driving song and hit a brick wall of sadness. She never Skip. Really Forward. <laughs> Sorry, we can't do that. We have to discuss all of them. No. Sacrificed without a fight. God, stop talking. A victim of a circumstance. Now that I've become aware and I've exposed this tragedy, a sadness grows inside of me. It all seems so unfair. I'm learning all about my life. We're learning all about your life too, buddy. Looking through her eyes. Okay. So basically, like, plot-wise, Nicholas visits Victoria's grave and like ruminates on her life and thinks about, you know, his like past lives. It's a song. Well, how do I want to phrase this? It's a song. <laughs> If you actually care about the plot of this and you're thinking about this album like as a musical type thing, which I kind of do, I think it sounds OK. It's it's a sad little like, you know, musical style like respite between the previous 13 minute epic and the following 13 minute epic. I don't think it needs to be five and a half minutes long. But uh, that's neither here nor there. If you care about the plot, it's part of it. It's okay. It's basically like a big slab of adult contemporary. It's uh, not really what Dream Theater does best. I'm not going to slam it because I'm sure everybody else is going to slam it because I'm pretty sure I am the most positive person on it because I think it's okay-ish. And I will say... um, If you listen to the uh, live scenes from New York live album, this is better there because the drums sound a little bit more alive and it all climaxes to like a very David Gilmour style like guitar solo from Petrucci, whereas this just kind of peters out into nothing. But uh, I'm just going to move on and let everybody else slam this (laughs) because uh, I want to move on to the better material. In my notes, I wrote down. A mix of the worst aspects of We Can't Dance by Genesis and Amused to Death by Roger Waters as Sun by Ray Wilson, the singer from Calling All Stations. You're not wrong, sir. Mm-hmm. One thing I've uh, honestly like worried about my taste in starting the show is that like kind of the sheer thrill of exploring new albums would just make me like everything. And then like on the way home from a concert recently, I heard Trains Drops of Jupiter on the radio and I thought, oh, yeah. There are songs I really hate. 
<laughs> um, this is a lot better than that. Yeah, it is. This is another song like that. I wouldn't, but I wouldn't say I hate it. But it is really, really bad and helps me like keep my critical sense calibrated. So, if nothing else, thank you through her eyes for helping me with that. This song sucks. Like as a person who enjoyed this album, this song is just like. It feels like late 90s Ozzy Osbourne singing a ballad, and you're like, no, buddy, this is not what you're here for. Stop. We, we had a good thing. We were going well. I was, I was on your train. We were going somewhere. And then just like, and it's just, this is so lyrically incomprehensible trash and just soft maudlin nonsense. And I'm like, dog, this ain't it. This, this, is, this ain't it. This does fit into sort of an adult contemporary format, but not one that was really popular at this time. Like, it makes me think of, like, Richard Marks or something. To me, yeah. it's like 1987 power ballad. Kind of, Yes, yeah. that's exactly yeah. it. In 1999. <laughs> like, the yeah. band would do ballads after this, but they would always, like, build to heavy parts, or at least, like, have, like, the good sense to, like, have, like, long crescendos and build towards, like, some sort of, like, emotional climax the band had never really done anything like this before, and they never really did anything like this after it. Lessons were learned that day. So I think they were trying something here. I think on a certain level, they realized it didn't entirely work, or maybe it only works in the context of if you're viewing this as like a musical. And they decided, eh, maybe not. And they did not do it again. They tried their best, and they failed miserably. <laughs> the lesson here, never try. <laughs> What is fun with this song is to try to imagine the bad music video that would accompany this song. Meatloaf. I just imagine them on stools in black and white, surrounded by candles. But, yeah, um, it's not good. Um, and the soaring guitar refrain uh, makes my stomach hurt. Again, That's all to say. Again, it sounds much better on the accompanying live album. I don't know. I don't know if I would say cool. I recommend listening to that version because it's still this song, even if it's a much better version of this song, but some of the worst elements of it, like the kind of like dinky sounding drums and like the really neutered sounding guitar are corrected there. Yeah. The production is definitely, definitely does not help it. Why would it's like you have Mike Portnoy and you have him doing nothing. Okay, so that's the end of Act 1. Uh, it's time for the intermission. Go get some popcorn. Sorry, John, they locked the doors. <laughs> Let's all go yeah. to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Get ourselves a snack. <laughs> now we can do better than that. Mike, how about some intermission music? Thanks, Mike. So let's start act two with scene six. I, I don't know. I, I feel like the scene should start over at this point, but the track listing says scene six. So I'm just going to follow that. I don't think they knew how opera works. <laughs> the song is called Home.
This might actually be my favorite Dream Theater song. Just it's like absolutely mine. Yeah, I think I think this is like 100% my favorite Dream Theater song. It's like so many different songs kind of just paced together, but it comes out so well. So first off, let's hit the elephant in the room here. That intro riff is 100% Tools 46 and 2 played on a sitar. Yep. And 100%. 46 and 2 is probably my favorite Tool song of all time. Or, well, it's like in the really top great. two or three. One of the greatest, I think, just prog metal songs ever written. So if you're going to cover it and or even steal that chunk of a song, you better do something good with it. And Dream Theater takes it, intro, like they turn it into this interesting sitara tone that's overlaid these drums and it's so good oh my god like when i came out of that stupid ballad and then i just get hit by this i'm like whoa where did this come from why is this so good and why did i have to suffer through that to get to this and that's when i realized that buddhism is true you must suffer to find your way to the goodness because <laughs> <laughs> this track is just 13 minutes of fantastic it's so just like it soars it's got incredible drums that just drive forward the guitar riff goes all over the place but even though they switch instruments between like sitar and electric guitar and stuff it still feels cohesive there's a line there that goes through this track which is just just encapsulates what it means to be 90s metal and i just i love every part of this yeah i love this one this is the song that like i was thinking i wanted to do dream theater and like this is probably not quite my favorite Dream Theater album because I really love um, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. But this is the song that probably kicked me over the top and saying, OK, I got to do this one. Mm. So let's get some uh, some uh, housekeeping out of the way first. The plot. What is going on in this song? So basically, you got two verses, each supposedly sung by two men. The first is the miracle real name Edward Baines. And The Sleeper, real name Julian Baines, which uh, The Miracle and The Sleeper is a reference to Metropolis Part 1, which was subtitled The Miracle and The Sleeper, but it eh, doesn't really matter. So The Sleeper is a tortured man whose addictions to uh, drugs and gambling are tearing him apart, and he's lamenting his life falling to pieces. He's also the man that was dating Victoria. The Miracle is a much more respectable man, a senator, according to the liner notes, and we learn that he is the sleeper's brother. Victoria loves the sleeper, but is tortured by how much of a mess his life is. And Victoria and the miracle begin an affair. Uh, then at the end, there's another verse where Nicholas just closes out lamenting his obsession with the tragic life of Victoria. Nobody really cares. Uh, <laughs> so let's just get down to business here, which is just that riff is just so awesome. I love the slow build opening to this song, which I didn't clip all of because, I mean, this album was really hard to pick clips from because there's so many like long, slow builds. I don't know. If I was going to pick the intro to any one of these songs, I would have picked this one and just said, here's the first two minutes. Just listen. It's so good. Yeah. This is a song where I think James Labrie's vocals really work. Like, mm. it's very theatrical and musically, but like, I think he had like the way the melody of this song works like when it builds to like the vocal climax at the end of each verse, I think it has some real emotional power to it. How much of it is that is his vocals versus how much of it is just the melody is so great. Like it's hard to say, 
And then, you know, after a couple of verses, which take a long time to spool out, you get, you know, a kind of instrumental section with some sound effects that spell out the plot, including a small amount with uh, some sex noises overdubbed on it, which I will not play because I love you, our listeners. And then uh, we get to one of my single favorite, like, instrumental sections in all of Dream Theater's music and really all of heavy metal. In like 1999, early 2000s, I used to play a lot of Quake. And one of the things about Quake on the PC was that you could take the CD out and put a different CD in, and it would start playing those songs as a background track instead of whatever the Red Book audio on Quake was. One of the things I did was make a CD compilation, one of my first burnt CDs, of Dream Theater kind of like instrumental bits, and use that to play Quake with at my buddy's LAN parties. So I'd be blasting this out of our speakers while we're running through, like, you know, the hallways shooting at each other because it just fit and felt good. My main shooter song association is uh, Jedi Knight and XTC's Making Plans for Nigel. Yeah, I had a lot of Tool and Dream Theater and Metallica in, in my library and Enigma and Enya because that's fun to shoot people too. But I love, like, you know, that instrumental section with, like, the key change of it just... Mm-hmm. It is some wonderfully well-composed, like, very well-composed, but still, like, really heavy and, like, driving. The drums are great. Like, there's a really cool, like, you know, keyboard line under that. Like, this is, like, again, not just my favorite Dream Theater song. This is one of my favorite metal songs ever. I think it works insanely well. And, like, this is, like, the song number one. I would say, like, if you don't like this song then you probably will not like Dream Theater. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think generally Fair. speaking, this is like, uh, this is probably the good test. Like if someone's like, I might be interested in Dream Theater and this does nothing for them, they're not your band. Well, on that note, John? <laughs> I think this is pretty good. When I listen to it, I've, I'm let, let me assure you, I've listened to this quite a bit. Um, 
I don't think it earns the whole 13 minutes, but I think it earns most of it. Um, I think that the introduction is a little bit overlawed, but it's really good. And I love that transition into, into the full metalized uh, version out of the sitar uh, mm. version. The part of the song that I like the most um, is the repeated uh, rising keyboard line with the guitar pyrotechnics, because it kind of reminds me of a prog metal cashmere. Yeah, it does. Which yeah. is a, which is kind of a, a good idea to have. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, the sex noises are are a thing. They they do exist, and I don't know. Maybe maybe my mind like slightly shuts off after that point as like a protective cocoon or something, because my mind wanders a bit in the last five minutes, uh, even with the, the the passages that unto themselves are are really good. Um, but my, my mind does drift a bit, but on the whole, I, I do really, really like this one. And if, if, if I was going to keep things, uh, from this album, this, this would be near the top of the list. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Like I listen to like, when I go to the gym, I don't really have like a playlist. I just usually like listen to whatever song I'm feeling like at the moment that I think is going to keep me going. And, you know, I still use iTunes, which tracks like how many times you've played each song. Home by Dream Theater is the most played song in my iTunes library, and it's not close. Hmm. Interesting. I, I like this one, but it's I do think I'm starting to get kind of tired at this point with the extended noodly stuff. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's the Dream Theater experience right there. <laughs> so maybe it's not for me after all. So it, it's fair to say that this song is maybe a little overlong. And like, there's just some stuff in it, like the the weird sex noise. The the maybe the second half of the vocals probably could go. Uh, it's definitely. I mean, that's so dream theater, though, right? Like, just like taking a really good idea and then maybe just going. Ah, oh, you could have stopped. You should have stopped. Oh, we're still going. Okay, okay. You know, that's like kind of the dream theater experience, which is like, you guys were great. Why are you, we should have gotten off now? Wait, our exit just passed. You know, like. <laughs> It, it's just they don't know when to stop. Like, their tracks don't know when to really end, and they don't really have a good kind of come down. But the first half of this song is hands down phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, you think that's bad? Wait till you get to their next album, which concludes with a 45-minute track that has its own disc. Pass. And there's a 10-minute <laughs> song about stem cell research, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, oh, uh, scene seven. One, the dance of eternity. More video gamey. Phil, there's an actual video game cover album of this, isn't there? Yes, on YouTube, there is a full chiptune cover of this entire album. Oh, that's how pricey. We should link to it in the show notes. We will link to it in the show notes. Hey, there's that again. Yes. 
This is a part where I'm just like, guys, really? Like, is this the tap dance interlude? <laughs> I like the <laughs> Like the guy like rolling down the piano keys. So no plot here. It's just a long instrumental. Uh, <laughs> the dream theater story. <laughs> yes. So John earlier said he was talking about how some of the songs, like he said, like Fatal Tragedy just kind of sounds like a bunch of cool parts slapped together. Uh, I disagreed on that. I agree with this one. This one absolutely sounds Woo! like a bunch of cool parts slapped together. <laughs> that said, they're really cool parts. And I don't mind that much because I love every part of this song. I saw Dream Theater live back in 2009 and they played this and it absolutely tore the house down because they played it, you know, perfectly. And it is insanely difficult music. So uh, the title of this, The Dance of Eternity, is a reference to a lyric in the Metropolis Part 1 from Images and Words, which, uh, if you're wondering, I don't think the lyrics there have anything to do with anything here. I think they just used it because of some musical similarities and because there are some musical references to the previous one. But it's not actually a sequel in the sense that, like, the you know, there's not, like, a plot to that song. I don't know what Metropolis Part 1 is about. You know, like, write in and tell me if you know. But... Yeah, this is just, it feels like here's just a bunch of awesome riffs and cool music ideas we came up with, which most of this was originally written as part of the Metropolis Part 2 demo from the Falling Into Infinity sessions. And it kind of shows. This is just, you know, here's a bunch of cool ideas slammed together for about six and a half minutes. Have fun with it. I agree with the with the take that this is like another, it's another, it's another ride, but it me- meanders a lot more to me than Fatal Tragedy does, but... Uh, your description of how it really tore down the house live, like, uh, well, to go back to the musical idea, I think that it would be really awesome to watch people dance to this song. And I'm sure that you saw a bunch of people dance at the concert, Phil. And there's more people sitting there nodding respectfully. Oh, yeah, this, right. It's a dream theater, dream theater concert. Audience is not a dance audience. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I, I do want to reiterate that I want to see this as a musical, though. This is the song where I'm like, OK, you guys went one step too far. Like. Home is a cohesive, really cool track. This one is just, it's jangly. It's just, it just doesn't feel very good. It's not very fun. It's technically proficient and very complex. But one thing I think is that Dream Theater really wants to be heard as an album band. They want you to sit and listen to the whole thing and kind of go with them on this journey. But I've always found Dream Theater is less exhausting to listen to when you're listening to it a track at a time because then you've got kind of like this break and you can kind of be able to modulate how you handle this because otherwise after like 45 minutes of this it's just a long flood of noise coming at you that you can't differentiate and you have no idea where it's going or what the point is and it just becomes really really difficult to listen to and because this track is so weird it's just like it comes at a weird place in the album and it just it really throws you off completely if you're trying to now if you're just listening to it individually this is a great track to just listen to unto itself but within the context of the album, this one doesn't work for me. Yeah, I, I have no, like, emotional reaction to it. Like, I mean, unless, like, hell yeah, like, when a bunch of cool riffs gets played sure. is an emotional reaction. But, like, if this is trying to convey any kind of feeling or anything, it doesn't. But that doesn't mean I don't like it a lot, because I do. It's just, if you're looking for, like, emotional reset like, cohesive emotional resonance, like, this is not, you know, the track for you. This is very much... If people talk about like Dream Theater, like being a show off band, this is exhibit A. This is them showing off. 
So is it weird that I like this more than home? A little bit. <laughs> no, good. Somebody's got to. <laughs> I, I just find, I think when they're just really colorful and just throwing everything at the walls, I find it more fun yeah. to listen to. Whereas to me, home is a little more dirgy and has kind of that late 90s metal thing that I'm just not as into. Whereas this one, I don't know. I like kind of much of just a million ideas just stitched together sometimes. It's kind of a and fun fireworks I, show I, or something. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's fun, and it's only six minutes, so it's, it's not <laughs> insanely long. I kind of like it. Um, the noises in the introduction might be my favorite part of the song. Just the just the goofy uh, sounds coming out of the guitar, and then from there, there's there's a few parts I I particularly uh, made note of. Uh, there's a guitar line that absolutely reminds me of something from Changes from Yes It's Nine Hundred One Two Five album. Um, I really like the stutter riffs uh, that come back around a 140, the minute 45 mark. Um, I'm absolutely cracked up by the the nod to solo Rick Wakeman in that uh, that 20s uh, piano bit. Um, and then there's a there's a really filthy bass line that that pops up around the three minute mark that I think is really neat. And yet, while I was listening to this, the there was a sentence that just uh, came to mind. As I was sitting here, and it was, I wish I was listening to the Mahavishnu Orchestra instead. That's fair <laughs> enough. This does kind of sound like them at times, except, well, yeah, the Mahavishnu Orchestra are way better at making you feel things. All right, let's go further into Act Two. This is Scene Seven, Two, One Last Time. We're gonna celebrate, oh yeah, oh, right. It doesn't make any sense. Tragic ending In spite of the evidence There's something still missing But some of the rumors told I taste the ones well If It's some plot. <laughs> so in this one, Nicholas tours the scene of the murder and thinks about what all this means. He feels that something doesn't quite add up with what his research found. This is some plot. It's kind of just there. It's, it's kind of a cool down after the nonstop craziness of um, the dance of eternity. Uh, there's a bunch of reprises of earlier themes later on. If it weren't for the fact that it had, like, plot advancement, I'd call this filler. I can't imagine this is anybody's favorite song on this album. Yeah, this is where either the hooks start to fail or I'm just kind of through and tired with this album. This, this album is kind of the closest of anything we've covered to conquering me, I think. <laughs> Honestly, like, just it's just such a behemoth. I, I think it's the hooks failing because, like, I think, like, I've listened to this stuff on its own, like, without the context of the rest of the album. And I think it's like, it starts to get a little bit weaker here. I think the lead-in from the previous song uh, to the the piano lines to start this one, I think that lead-in is pretty slick. And I like the piano lines themselves. On the downside, oh, Labrie. He really, really gets to me in this song. I 
don't like him in this song at all. But on the plus side, this song is less than four minutes. <laughs> and the, the, the fading part is the, the part near the end. It's eerie and it's neat. Um, it has things to recommend to it, but it just kind of floats by. Yeah, it's okay. It's fine for what it is. It's, this is, again, not my kind of... It feels very musical theatery to me, which is just not nope. my cup of tea generally. But it's okay for what it is. It doesn't bother me, but it's also far from my favorite. <laughs> I listened to this song, and I know I listened to this song, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell you a single thing about this song. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's why I took notes. Yeah, we're, we're going pretty long. Let's just move on. Uh, scene eight, the spirit carries on. I used to be frightened of dying. I used to think death was the end. John's waving a lighter. Yeah, this this does kind of feel like the big show-stopping number to me. Yeah. Never find all the answers. I may never understand why. I never prove what I know to be true, but I know that I still have to try. If I die tomorrow. The band you're in starts playing different tunes. Yeah. This feels very late period Pink Floydy. Yep. Either Roger Waters or oh, David yeah. Gilmore. I'm not quite sure which. Maybe a blend. But it sounds very much like something that would come out of like a late period Pink Floyd album. So plot wise, uh, Nicholas feels comforted, uh, realizing that no matter what happens after he dies, his spirit will continue on. He visits Victoria's grave and hears a message telling him to move on with his life, but to never forget her. Again, if you're thinking of this as a musical, this feels like the big showstopper. Because, I mean, if you go all the way back to track one, Regression, it's the same melody as that. Like, this is the theme that shows up throughout the album, and this is like the big, like, climax there. So, I don't know if it works, like, it's not, like, overwhelmingly emotional or anything. If they're going for that, I don't think they quite get there. But I do think this is a pretty nice song. And I think it works better almost if you just listen to it out of the context of the album, because this album is long. After, like, all the crazy instrumental stuff earlier, this, like, barely stands out because they've beaten you over the head so much. But in terms of, like, you know, the ballads on this album, it's like, this is a million times better than Through Her Eyes. This has a nice, like, kind of gospel-style crescendo to it. Uh, It's never going to be one of my favorite Dream Theater songs, but I like this one plenty. My notes basically say... Pink Floyd Eclipse. That's basically <laughs> I mean, it's all I hear. Uh, it's it's okay. Uh, again, it's super musical theatery to me. Uh, 
Eh. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a fan of musical theater. I'm not a fan of just big, like, story-driven, like, just bombastic songs. I'm like, okay, I get it. You're coming to the end of your album. Do your thing, man. But this is, this is not what I'm here for dream theater, right? Like, this is not the part of dream theater I care about. Like, this is just kind of like, okay, you're going to just theater on, I guess. This is more of the theater and less of the dream. And I'm just checked out for that. Man, we're we're also audibly tired by this point. I should probably note to listeners that this uh, we're recording this uh, in late July at the end of that giant heat wave that like you know, <laughs> spanned the entire continent. I can't have the fan on because uh, because the mic would pick it up and oh gee, we all died. But luckily, our spirits will transcend and will be reincarnated at some point. So, well, I'm glad that none of you uh, like this song. I liked it much. Okay, fine. <laughs> Phil somewhat likes this song because the first sentence I wrote down is empty, bombastic, quasi inspirational horseshit. I'm 100% on that train. <laughs> Again, I like this song, but you're not wrong. I hate this song so much. It is so close to Through Your Eyes as my least favorite on this. Um, I hate Labrie's singing on this so much. And the only part that I like is the backing vocals and the style pulled straight from Brain Damage and Eclipse. But it makes me mad that they're basically saying, hey, you liked those songs by a band that's older and better than us, right? Well, you'll surely like this as well. And I'm like, nope, I am not okay with this. I hate this song so much. This song is garbage. Well, I got good news for you, John. Scene nine, we're finally free. It's 12 minutes. <laughs> Friday evening, the blood's still on my hands. To think that she would leave me now, for that I'm grateful, man. Sole survivor, witness to the crime. I must act fast to cover up. I think that there's still time. Hate seem hopeless and lost with this note Fail by into the words that I wrote This feeling inside me Finally found my love I finally broke free No longer torn in two I take my own life So at the finale, we get a big plot twist and we learn that the truth of the murder is that Victoria was going to leave the miracle for the sleeper, since despite all of his flaws and addictions, he was still deeply in love with him. The miracle, who was the respectable guy that she ran off with, flew into a jealous rage and murdered them both, then staged the scene to make it look like a murder suicide. Nicholas learns about this via his hypnotherapy and feels satisfied knowing the truth of what happened. Then the album ends really weirdly, because at the end, uh, we hear Nicholas sitting alone at home when the hypnotherapist shows up, screams, open your eyes, at which point the album screeches to a halt. 
It doesn't really say this in the album, but the band has confirmed that the hypnotherapist is supposed to be the reincarnation of the person who murdered Victoria. And then he murders Nicholas to complete the cycle. That's weird. That seems out of nowhere. That seems like they just kind of threw that in because they wanted to have something clever. But uh, it's uh, kind of nonsense. This is kind of a weekend to the album. There's some nice moments, but uh, it's not the best part of the album. It's it's very plot heavy. Like there's some cool parts here. There's a brief moment uh, that kind of like musically comes out of nowhere that serves as the musical climax to the album. That's probably worth uh, listening to. This song is just way too long. Like, well, this is going to bring me to something about Dream Theater in general, which is that none of their albums are perfect. Like, all of their albums have some incredibly killer stuff on them. Like, some of my favorite music can be found on Dream Theater albums, but because of their, you know, excess, all of their albums have a few things that either straight up suck or are just not very interesting and just you don't really think of them when you think of like you know the album this kind of falls flat as a conclusion for me it's got some good stuff on it i don't dislike it because i like dream theater sound enough that even when they're not great i still like them but um considering this is like 12 minutes long or whatever like is this anybody's favorite song on this album i think everybody just kind of views this as like some like you know house cleaning with the plot Look, the album ended with Home, and then there's a bunch of just outro stuff afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus tracks. That's, again, that is not the wrong opinion. There are some cool sound effects, though. And at uh, the very, very end, before it cuts to static, sounds kind of like the Mystery Science Theater closing theme. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> it does. <laughs> that perks me up this late in the album. <laughs> so Dream Theater started doing something at this point, that there's a bunch of static that ends the album. And they started tying all their albums directly together with sound effects. So if you buy their next album, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, it starts with the sound effect from the end of this album. And then there's a sound effect at the end of that album, which their seventh album starts with, and et cetera, et cetera. And they started tying all their albums together in that sense for a while before they eventually decided, eh, let's stop doing this. That's what happens if you listen to The Wall while high mm-hmm. too many times in a yeah. row. This album really needed a two-minute coda. The only way I would be satisfied at this point would be if the, if this had just ended with a two-minute wrap-up, and 12 minutes is just malpractice. <laughs> now, with that said, um, there's, there's a really angry-sounding instrumental thunderstorm that emerges under the sound effects about four minutes, and, and I think that's pretty good. Um, it's just a little... It's too little too late. Um, and I like the way that it returns... Uh, for a couple of minutes before the the sound effects that end the album but just the way that they that they put this all together just strikes me as completely bonkers which i guess i should be used to uh, in a certain sense by this point but 
in my 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 mind's checklist of good album construction this violates half a dozen rules yeah yeah it does feel like you know i want to leave the marvel movie and the credits are rolling but there are like five post-credit sequences that's exactly what it feels yes like. <laughs> like you guys have taken all the goodwill that home built up and just slowly dribbled it away and we're still here and you just won't let me leave the party and you're still talking and you're still telling me that story and i'm just like checked out 15 and a half minutes ago and i don't know it's like it's amazing how interminable this feels like it feels like you're being held hostage by this album by this point and it's just it's it's bad because like there's so many just in the front loaded with so many good tracks that just feel cool and it just dribbles away into nothing (laughs) i do like how there's a literal record scratch (laughs) (laughs) in in the sound effects collage there's a a stock clip of a woman screaming that i swear is like wilhelm scream level like ubiquitous (laughs) i've heard in a thousand things but i can't quite place it also they randomly play footage in the background of of a news report from the day that john f kennedy jr died yeah i don't know why do they do that importance to that i don't think so (laughs) Okay, just to set the scene, I guess. I guess. Gilding the lily. That is the end of Scenes from a Memory. Indeed it is. So, Phil, what are your your overall thoughts on this album and Dream Theater? So, I really like this album. Like, it's not perfect. It has flaws. Every Dream Theater album has flaws. They are a band, like, that by their very nature, they're so excessive and they go like so far out there and like, you know, shoot for the moon in so many ways that are often like kind of, you know, don't work. There's weak stuff on here and it goes on too long. And I say this as a person who loves the album, but like like most Dream Theater albums, there's like 40 or 50 minutes of material on this album that is so fantastic, just like so like transcendently good that when I think of the album, it kind of wipes away the stuff that's like weaker. That's basically my take on Dream Theater. They're one of my favorite bands, which is not the same as saying where they're one of the best bands. They're a band that I really love because when they're good, they're incredibly good. And I think the good stuff here is so good that it overwhelms the less good stuff. Yeah, you know what? I agree. So I have been always kind of like a tepid Dream Theater fan. Like, I'm not the hardest core, but I've definitely enjoyed a lot of it. I've listened to a lot of it over the years. And there's just, when they hit, they're just fantastic. They're so mood setting. They're so theme setting. And just their instrumental work is bar none when it comes to just fantasy metal. It's just, it's exactly, there's sometimes when this is the itch that you're looking to get scratched and nobody does it better than Dream Theater does. Because like sometimes you just want bananas, bonkers, crazy virtuoso solos that just take you on this crazy journey. And it feels real good when you get to listen to like Dream Theater and do it. But they just don't know when to quit. They don't know when, like how to edit themselves. And they just take all this goodwill that they build up. It's almost like every other song is just like slamming the brakes and just getting jarred in your car, right? And I don't know. I mean, I dig it. I've always dug this. But there's half of the tracks on this are just totally, I could toss them and be a happier person. Um, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it Again, this this is my, my first exposure to Dream Theater. And to be honest, it, 
I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. This is again not not my my general area, but uh, the best moments are really fun, and the more excessive moments are not as fun. But uh, I don't know if I'll be in a hurry to check out anything else from the Dream Theater catalog. But I was I'll say again I was pleasantly surprised with this. Yeah, I I, feel, I kind of feel the same. The I'm, like I'm in the same spot as you, Dan. Like this really took me out of my comfort zone. And I I, I remember Phil. I remember taking you out of your comfort zone with Janet Jackson. And I appreciate you doing the opposite with me, especially with something so defiantly uncool. Like you really <laughs> have take you really take us to new frontiers on this podcast. <laughs> I am very good at making us uncool. And there really is some great music on this album. And honestly, I. I I find their sincerity very admirable. So that's that's one thing. And I can't recommend enough that listeners watch Dead Again, I have to say. <laughs> it's really, really fun. Um, anyway, John. So I've been, I've been thinking for weeks about what I was going to say in, in this section. And there's something that came to mind uh, in the last couple of weeks. Based around a video I, I, I had remembered seeing years ago, and then, I, and then I went and found it, and we'll include it in the show notes. Um, that I think kind of works as an interesting analogy here. So there's a video that was made in Australia in the early 2010s um, attempting to depict what English sounds like to people who don't speak English. It's it's a couple of people like acting out like a three-minute scene, and there are English words in there, and then a bunch of sounds surrounding that that kind of sound like uh, English syllables. Uh, but that don't quite work. And the reason I mention this is I, I feel like that video, when I uh, listen to this album, I get a sense of what prog rock sounds like to people who don't like prog. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an interesting experience for me. With that said, I feel different about Dream Theater now than when I started this process. Um, coming in, they were they were kind of just uh, kind of a monster not to be spoken of um, in the recesses of my of my musical memory. And whereas now I can see them just as a band that, you know, I don't necessarily uh, want to go out of my way to listen to, but I, I can get why somebody, or at least I, think I, I can understand why somebody would want to listen to them, whereas I couldn't necessarily make that connection before. And there's quite a few interesting bits on this album, uh, for sure. A lot of the instrumental passages uh, by themselves, and even uh, in some cases, um, taken in context, are really quite interesting. Um, I really don't appreciate the singing at all, really, <laughs> at, at any point. But even with that, there is enough in here to to catch my interest, enough for me to be able to at least say, yeah, it's it's fine. And... That is such a, a change from where I started with this that, you know what, Phil, you should be commended. Hooray. Now let us never speak of it again. <laughs> so, Phil, if uh, after enduring 77 minutes of Metropolis Part 2 scenes from a memory, uh, somebody wants to listen to more Dream Theater, where should they go? I would first recommend they go directly to the album right after this, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. I've brought it up before. I think it's generally their strongest album. I didn't pick it here because I think it's like less definitively what Dream Theater is. Um, they actually scale like despite the fact that there's a 45 minute song on it, it's more of a suite like thick as a brick or something. And it works, you know, pretty consistently. But yes, definitely like get that one. That's the album of theirs I would recommend to people more more than this one. Even like I would definitely say that's the one to start with. 
beyond that, like most of their albums are pretty good. Most people would recommend Images and Words or Awake. I always thought those albums were very overrated. I just because I don't really like the production very much. I think the production sounds very wimpy. Whereas like on albums like this, it sounds way more full. Another album I would recommend from them is an album that a lot of their fans don't particularly like, but I do, and that is um, Black Clouds and Silver Linings from uh, 2009, which contains two of their best songs in A Nightmare to Remember and The Count of Tuscany. extremely well despite the fact that the lyrics on that album are some of their dream theater's worst their lyrics are very bad but i mean like i've said if you're listening to dream theater for the lyrics i don't know what to tell you but it's got tons of awesome instrumental passages that don't drag like the count of tuscany is 20 minutes long and it doesn't drag a nightmare to remember is 17 minutes long and it doesn't drag If you're looking for bands that sound like Dream Theater, but are not actually Dream Theater, um, the band I would most recommend is a band called Symphony X. The album of theirs I would most recommend is probably The Odyssey, which contains a 20-some minute retelling of The Odyssey in prog metal form. And it's better than you would guess based on that description.
yeah, those those would probably be my best recommendations for if you like Dream Theater where you go, I'd recommend go there. I can't speak to further Dream Theater, except that I heard images and words and awake and I uh, agree with your assessment of them. But I would say that the same things that turned me off of those early albums also turned me off of the album Deloused in the Comatorium by the Mars Volta. And I gave that a listen earlier, and it is pretty similar to Dream Theater, honestly. So if you like Dream Theater by the transitive property, you probably will like the Mars Volta. My Mars Volta recommendation would be Francis the Mute, which I've listened to every Mars Volta album, and Francis the Mute is the only one I can stomach. But I like that one plenty. I don't have Dream Theater recommendations, obviously, um, but I, I do have a, a, a couple, uh, three uh, three albums, actually, that I want to mention in relation to this. So I was looking at, out of curiosity, I was looking at their Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page for this album, and there was a list of infl- of albums that were influences uh, for this. So I want to mention a couple of the ones from there in particular, and then mention one other. So if somebody, it, for, for, for whatever reason, is uh, into things like the convoluted plot, of this album and they like albums with convoluted plots um <laughs> genesis the lamb lies down on broadway might be for you exactly what for, i thought you were going to suggest for, for the record uh i loved that album on first listen so take that as you will a second one i'd want to mention is amused to death by roger waters um makes a very very similar uh use of it, it's it's similar in terms of how it deploys sound effects uh in and around uh, the music, uh, there's there's a lot of bits on this album that re- remind me of that album, uh, for better or for worse. And and a third one I want to mention. Um, this will be the only time in history of this podcast that I will recommend a Rush album. And the album that I'm going to recommend is their final studio album called Clockwork Angels from 2012. W- when I was listening to uh, this album for the podcast, uh, I was I was very surprised at how immediately I thought of Clockwork Angels. And, and Clockwork Angels is an album that I actually quite like, um, which is not always the case uh, for, for Rush albums. It's, it's, uh, it's one where they, uh, they, they updated, updated their sound in such a way where it's clear that uh, you know, they were now listening to Dream Theater uh, a bit and, and trying to, to pick off uh, influences and ideas there and, and create a, a similar kind of sound uh, and approach. So, yeah, if, if you like this, Clockwork Angels, if you haven't heard it, might be might be just for you. I would agree with that assessment. That's a really good album. OK, so we're done. Um, we're, fi- we're done with the Dream Theater. That was quite an adventure, Phil. Thank you. You're finally free. <laughs> finally free. Uh, un- until John listens to Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence tomorrow, obviously. Nope. But anyway, uh, enough with Dream Theater. Next album. So, okay, music snobs, thank you for putting up with this one. Mike is going to take us to the other end of the cool spectrum with next episode's album. Producer Brian Eno's solo debut, Here Come the Warm Jets. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And it's a really interesting album that honestly defined a lot of what we think of as production today. So it's going to be really fun. I encourage everyone to listen in. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory, and other albums by Dream Theater at your local Virgin Megastore, or Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. And we made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Follow me at Zonetrope. 
follow Phil at PA Maddox, follow Dan at Dan S. Watkins, follow John at Tarkus1980, and follow Shivam at Electrotal, and that's uh, Electro with a K. Visit John's now two-decade-old music review archive at johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org, and he's about to start a Paul McCartney page, which should be fun. Listen to Shivam's podcast, Commanderin, wherever podcasts are found. Editing is by me, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for his production, and because he also had to listen to this album during post-production. See you next album, and be ever wonderful.